0: These are the adjectives that come to mind or spring to mind, I should say, when I think about the most popular, most common methods for calculating flat fees. Uh, And these adjectives, by the way, not positive, do not apply to the client. They only apply to the interior design professional side of the equation. Because almost always with these methods, the interior designer works uh, very, very hard and earns a fraction of what she ought to earn in exchange for the hard work and value she brings to the table. And the client gets an incredibly good deal. Although I must say often, even though the client doesn't pay as much as they ought to, they still end up not getting satisfied for a variety of reasons. So I wanna look at these three most popular ways of calculating flat fees and hopefully convince you that this can't be the way you want to run your successful business. You want to create a situation where it's a win for you and it's a win for your customers because in my office at least, the ultimate goal is a repeat customer, a repeat or referral customer uh, that will keep my client pipeline full for years to come. already be thinking, how the heck do you know what the three most popular ways for calculating flat fees are? Well, for the last 15 years, I have been teaching business of design uh, largely across North America. I have talked to literally thousands of interior design professionals, and they tell me that these are the methods that they are using, uh, and I've used them myself. And I can tell you firsthand, they stink. And it's likely you're using one of them. So I'm not picking on you Believe me, I've used them all. I'm going to run through uh, these three lousy methods. The first one is guesstimating. The second one is going to surprise a lot of you, room by room fees. It's very, very popular to assign a fixed value to a specific room. And the third one is a percentage of overall budget. And I think that's going to surprise a lot of you too, because it sounds so logical. Not one of these common estimating techniques, guesstimating, room-by-room fees, or percentage of overall budget consistently provides an accurate fee that covers the actual amount of time you spend on the job. And that's great news for clients. The clients are the sole beneficiaries when it comes uh, to the designer miscalculating the amount of time required. The designer may lose money, but the clients continue to reap the benefits of our dedication, commitment to excellence, experience, and hard work. And by the way, none of this is the client's fault. They play by the rules we give them. Clients, in fact, probably don't even realize that designer's undercharging for services and not earning a living wage because the reality is renovating, decorating is very expensive. So the client is making the assumption, and they should, why shouldn't they, that we're making a decent living from the hard work we do and we're enjoying some profitability. Otherwise, a client may be thinking, why wouldn't we charge more? Clients are also blissfully unaware of the extent of our expenses, what our overhead is like, what our day-to-day responsibilities are like. And quite frankly, that's our problem. They shouldn't even have to think about that. They don't know how long it takes to get even a simple task done or how many complicated hoops we jump through every day, how much hand-holding and follow-up we provide, and how many mistakes we avert or catch outright, Um, how many thankless tasks we do in a day, how many times have you picked up some, the slack for somebody else? Most clients, having never tried to perform the work of a professional designer, think that what we do for a living is fun. Isn't that true? Don't people say that to you all the time? Oh, what do you do for a living? I say, oh, I'm a designer, or I'm a decorator. And they say, oh my gosh, that sounds like so much fun. I wish I had done that instead of what I do. And the fact of the matter is, you know, it can be fun, but it's hard work. And I do want to emphasize this, at no point ever do I mean to imply that anything that's going wrong in your business is the client's fault. The reality is, as mature business owners, we have to take responsibility for creating a situation where everybody can win, us and the client. That's the only way to really thrive in this business. (laughs) Let me squeeze in a shout out for Patrick Reynolds Media. They have been doing our video production for, oh, I don't know, something like 15 years. Patrick and I have traveled all over the world together. We've filmed for a variety of television shows. But we also do home tours for my website, and we also do all of our business of design videos. So if this is something you've been thinking it's time to add to your repertoire, Uh, Patrick Reynolds Media, I can't recommend them enough. Information about them is at businessofdesign.com. If you are in the Toronto area, uh, they're going to be able to service you uh, firsthand. If not, they're going to help hook you up with someone in your neighborhood who's a good fit. Thank you so much, Patrick Reynolds Media. Uh, We love working with you, and we appreciate the love and support for our podcast. Let's talk about that first lousy method, and that is guesstimation. Uh, You arrive at the consultation, you're feeling good, you're feeling optimistic. If you're anything like me, I'm three steps ahead, and I'm thinking about the beautiful magazine spread that's going to happen when this project turns out to be as gorgeous as I think it's going to turn out. Uh, But in any case, you're meeting the client, you're getting a walkthrough of the house, you're learning what the client likes, what the client doesn't like, what they want to add, what they want to take away, what they want to emphasize, what they want to de-emphasize. And if you're like me, you're furiously taking notes because I want to get all this good information down on paper. Uh, We spend an hour and a half or so moving through each room of the house. And at first, it's a little slow, it's a little awkward we're just getting to know each other. Uh, but by the time we get a two or three rooms into the process, the client is feeling really comfortable. And now they've described the most important features of the style they're trying to create. I really am starting to get an idea of what the client is looking for. And it begins to move along a little bit more quickly. So we finally get through the entire area that's going to be up for redecoration or remodeling or renovating or whatever it is. And the clients says the inevitable words, so what's this going to cost? And there I am, deer in the headlights. Even though I know it's not possible for me to know what it's going to cost, there's a temptation for me to give them some number. How on earth could I possibly know at this moment, after such a short time at the client's house, what it's going to cost? And yet in my head, I somehow think I'm supposed to because I think clients think we're supposed to. So let's keep things really simple. And let's use an example like a kitchen. We've all done kitchen renovations. Some of you listening specialize in kitchen renovations or kitchen remodeling. And um, you're thinking, you know, yeah, I could say to the client, the kitchen remodel is going to be, oh, $60,000 because on average, that's what kitchens uh, cost but aren't there a million variations that could make that number either way too high or way too low or any other combination? And the answer is yes, of course there are. I've done kitchens where we've gutted the entire kitchen. We've moved everything in the kitchen. It no longer resembles its former self. And those kitchens are much more expensive than the kitchens where we've left everything in its proper place and maybe the client's going to reuse all the appliances. So for me to just give a blanket number about what it's going to cost to do a kitchen is really premature at this step. And now, if you add to that the question of what are the fees going to be to accomplish this, it becomes a further step complicated. In fact, I have no idea what the fees are going to be to accomplish any of this because A, I'm only now learning what the scope of work is for the first time. B, although I've done a lot of kitchens, this one's different than every other one I've done. And see, I have no idea if this client is going to be my preferred type of client who makes swift decisions and doesn't change her mind, or if she's going to be the kind of client who makes a decision and then three days later calls and says, I'm not sure. And a week after that goes to Florida and says, I saw something different. Let's change our mind. Uh, That client is going to be a lot more expensive. And in fact, that's a nightmare situation for anybody who's thinking of using flat fees, isn't it? Now, some are listening and they say, you know what? No, I I got this. I can totally tell a client what a kitchen's going to cost uh, because I know in the past that my design fees on kitchens have been uh, around $10,000. So I got this. This is good. It's easy. Well, that may be true if there are not big variations, but if it's widely different from other kitchens that you've done. For example, it could be much larger. We're doing a kitchen now that's 40 by 40. Uh, that's pretty big compared to a lot of the small kitchens that we do in condos. Um, this kitchen is going to have two islands and two dishwashers. So there's a lot of duplication going on and I couldn't possibly guess how much time it's going to take me to fulfill on that project right on the spot like that with the client staring down at me. Even if I have done projects like that in the past, I want to ask myself, hey, you think your design fees for a kitchen in the past have been around $10,000. On those other projects, did you in fact log every minute of your time? If you did log every minute of your time, did you in fact bill the client for every minute of your time? Because if you didn't bill the client for every minute of your time and you're going back and thinking what you did bill ultimately, it was already reduced off what you should have billed. So I think it's important to go back and be realistic about what type of analytics you've kept in the past and whether or not you really, truly were able to track all of your time, which means all of your expertise, and bill the client for every minute you spent on the job. Or you might be like me, I had uh, two babies, uh, nearly 11 pounds each, by the way, Uh, And yet after the first 11 pound baby, I sort of forgot how painful it was going to be to have the second 11 pound baby. And that happens to me on projects too. I go back and I think, oh yeah, I did do that kitchen in the past and my design fees were around $10,000. And I forget that at the end of that project, I had said to myself, I will never do that again because I spent three times as much time as I got paid for. I totally put that part out. of my mind, all I remember is the pretty picture at the end, and I'm so busy, I move on very quickly to the next job and the next job and the next job. If I don't slow down and analyze what actually happened and grab the learnings from past projects, then I am doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. For those of you who are relatively new to the industry, you don't have a lot of experience with doing the flat fees, I often say, stick with hourly fees until you really have a firm grip on everything uh, that's entailed with pricing a job. Um, And too often I hear other speakers encourage people to abandon ship and immediately go to flat fees. And I'm telling you, without a lot of experience to guide you in those first proposals, you're really going to lose your shirt. Another thing I've noticed at this exact moment, you finish the consultation uh, and the client says, how much, how much is it going to be? Usually they follow that comment up with the words, don't worry, we won't hold you to it. And experience has shown me over and over again, in fact, they do hold you to it. And I have stumbled into this so many times, even recently, a year ago, it happened again. I know not to say anything when they put those words out there. I know that there's no way I'm going to win. And yet I did it again. It was a basement renovation. We were paneling the walls. We were building a new bar. It was quite an elaborate project, probably about a $200,000 project uh, at the end of the day. And the client had said to me, just give me a guess. And he said, I'm not going to hold you to it. And I laughed. And I said, everybody says that, but they always want to hold you to it. And he said, no, no, really, just just give me a guess. He said, I'm thinking around $100,000. So I said, you know what? I think $100,000 is shy uh, of what it's going to cost you I would say closer to $150,000. But again, I'm just guessing. I'm going to go through my regular process, and at step five, I'll tell you exactly what it's going to cost. And so, of course, step five rolls around. It's $195,000. And the client, don't you know it, says, You promised me it would be $100,000. And I was stunned. I mean, really? We both know I didn't promise you it would be $100,000. That's ridiculous. And I'm looking at him and his wife and they're like really firm on this that I promised them it would be $100,000. And I remind them, that's ridiculous. I didn't say that. What I actually said was my guess is it's going to be closer to $150,000, but it was just a guess. So I stepped in it again. And every single time that happens, it's demoralizing, it's frustrating. It causes a resentment in me because the client purposefully, I think, is misremembering the conversation. Uh, And it it really uh, makes me feel uncomfortable. So I've learned... That I'm not clairvoyant. I don't have a magic eight ball. I can't possibly make a decision on the spot about what I think a job is going to cost and have that in any way cover the actual amount of time it's going to take me. So I want everybody to just get real comfortable knowing that it's not you, it's the method. The method is lousy. Guesstimating is lousy. Even if you think you're guesstimating based on past projects, it's lousy. Get rid of it. Don't use it. It doesn't work. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, this never happens to me because I don't give them a number on the spot. I take the information from the consultation back to my office and I do the calculations there. And what I would say to you, um, because I've coached so many of you, is my guess is you're still not able to give them an accurate estimate for flat fees, uh, even if you take that information back to the office. And I don't like to do that because, A, it means I'm going to be spending another half hour or one hour on that consultation, uh, which I have not been paid for because I'm only getting paid for a two-hour consultation, A, and B... Even after I do some analyzing and thinking and playing it over in my mind, I have found that the number I come back to them with isn't accurate. So that still doesn't solve the problem for me guesstimating is wrong almost 100% of the time. So I think the bottom line is whether you're guesstimating right on the spot or you're guesstimating after you take it back to the office, um, it's not a good method to use. There are better methods to to use. So let's put that one aside and we'll move on to room by room fees because this is a really popular method as well. Oh, and I do not want to forget to mention this, so put those room-by-room fees on hold for one second while I say this. I have learned through experience that giving clients a number at the consultation so they can move forward gets me a 50% increase in the number of jobs I get. And I have learned that not only from myself, but from others that I coach. So giving them a number at the consultation immediately increases your chances of getting the job by 50%. That's huge. And I understand the temptation to go back to the office because I have had that feeling many, many times of being the deer in the headlight. The client staring at you and they want a number, how much it's going to cost, and it's terrifying. So I want to get that over with as quickly as possible. And the fastest way to get that over with is to say, oh, I can't give you that information now. I'm going to take it back to the office and I'll get back to you. But I saw firsthand from myself and from others that when I am able to give the customer a flat fee at the consultation, it increases the chances of getting that job by 50%. That's a lot. I mean, imagine right now if you could increase the number of projects you get by half. That's what we're talking about here, a 50% increase in the number of projects you get. That's a big deal for many of you Uh, That would put you in another league. So, certainly, that's true for me. It was important that I create a system where I could give them a flat fee and get the job and go home and not have to worry about that consultation anymore. Move on to the exciting next phase, which is step three and the rest of the project. Getting back to the room-by-room fees, I was super excited about this one when I heard about it. And I heard about it from a whole bunch of different designers all over North America, uh, all through the United States, who are super enthusiastic about it. And it sounds awesome. And in theory, it is awesome. So here's how it works. Uh, Every single room in the house has a fixed associated with it. Living rooms are $3,500. Powder rooms are $5,000. Living rooms are $3,500. Kitchens are $5,000, etc. Simple. You go to the consultation, the client says, we want to renovate the kitchen. We want to do the living room. And you pull out the chart and you say, well, kitchens are $5,000 and the living room is $3,500. That's $8,500. Tickety-boo, I'm on my way and you get the job. I guarantee you're going to get the job and you're going to be the busiest designer in town. But I can also guarantee that you're not going to make any money. And that sounds crazy because some of you are going, are you kidding me? $8,500 is great. It is great. But what if you have to work a year? for that $8,500. What if you have to burn yourself out to the point of total exhaustion for $8,500? Is it really great money then? And if you spread that $8,500 out over nine months or 10 months or 12 months, remove from it all of your overhead and then tell me what's left. Nothing. Nothing not a bit of it is left. So I know for sure $8,500 is not enough for me to redesign or remodel the kitchen and decorate the living room. Not enough money, no way around it. What I like about room by room fixed fees is it looks so professional. It removes that whole deer in the headlights thing because when the client says how much, you pull out the handy chart, and you're on your way. So I appreciate um, the appeal of it, and I was very excited to try it myself, and I did, and I got creamed. And here's why. Let's say the client wants me to do just a living room. I'll use an example that I had. It was just a living room, and I bumped my fees up to $6,000 for just the living room. Now, I had heard a lot of people use $3,500 for a living room, and I knew immediately that was way too low. One of the firms that told me that specific number uh, reached out to me for coaching. They are the biggest firm in their town, and uh, it's it's a relatively big city, and they were flat broke. And that's the number that they use for living rooms, $3,500. So you can imagine how busy they are because boy, that's a good deal. So in any case, uh, I didn't make those numbers up. So I decided I was going to try a living room for $6,000, even though I knew that was a little bit shy. I just wanted to see if giving it a number like $6,000, if I worked really hard, I really tried my best, if I could bring it in under that number. And I can tell you, I can't. However, Let's just say in that example, I said to the client, a living room is $6,000. And the client said to me, oh, okay, so a typical living room would be painting and new draperies and maybe some artwork and a mirror over the fireplace and some new furniture and an area carpet and some accessories. And they said, mm-hmm, yeah. And she said, but, but I don't need draperies uh, and I don't need any artwork and uh, I'm keeping the buffet that's in the corner. I'm keeping the secretary that's in the corner. So I don't need everything for my living room. So why is it $6,000 when I only need 70% of it? Shouldn't it be $6,000 minus 30%? And honestly, that kind of stumped me. So I stuttered through my response, which is, no, every living room is different. Every client is different. It's rare that we do the whole room from scratch. There's usually a few elements that are existing that we keep. And I could just tell the client wasn't buying it and she wasn't really happy. So that was the first problem. Every time there's a variation, I found the clients would try to negotiate down based on those variances. And that put me back in a position of feeling like a deer in the headlight. It also put me in a position where I was trying to justify my salary. And that is, I I don't like that. I'm not good at it. It makes me feel lousy. And I don't want to do it. So I, I didn't love that. But anyway, I soldiered on. We did decide to do it. I did the 6000 And then what I discovered is uh, I not only did I not bring that room in for under $6,000 in fees, uh, I just about tripled the amount of fees and it caught me off guard. And I'll tell you what happened. The client wanted repeat of the presentation meeting. She wanted more examples. She wanted more choices. Um, it went on and on and on, and I felt like it was a, a room and a house that I was trapped in for 10 years. It ended up taking about 10 months, which really isn't unusual. Uh, again, I can't blame the clients. I gave her the rules and the rules were not strict enough and ended up, you know, working the other eight and a half months for free. And that felt lousy. I didn't like it. I did my best work. I didn't complain to the client because I knew darn well it wasn't her fault, but it certainly didn't make me uh, want to run with joy to the project every time there was an issue. I'll tell you that. And it became a real bone of contention for me to complete that job and get out of there as fast as I could. Interestingly enough, too, even though it was, I think, inexpensive for the client at the end of the day, I didn't want to work with that client again. And, and that really, um, wasn't her fault. I had given her the rules of the game and she played by them and I didn't like it at the end of the day. And I made up that this isn't a good situation and we're not a good fit, I think had I done it in a better way, we would have been a better fit, and I would have gone on to work with her again. So often you'll hear me talk about my 85% repeat and referral statistic, which makes me really happy. That was a situation that fell into the 15% that isn't a repeat or a referral, and I felt badly about it. So I ended up trying, um, I would say, about a half dozen jobs with a fixed room-by-room room fees and was unable to... Um, um, make the kind of money that I could make with hourly fee contracts. So it just didn't work for me. At the end of the day, this is a business. The time that I spend working on client projects is time I can't spend doing anything else. It's time I spend missing my family. It's time I spend not going to yoga and not taking care of myself. So it needs to be compensating me at least financially. The other situation I ran into with the room by room fees was um, the humongous room. <laughs> so you know we've all had those clients where it's a teeny tiny little condo, seven hundred and fifty square feet, uh, and of course the client's going to say, "Well, if a typical living room is thirty five hundred, but my tiny little living room is still thirty five hundred, that doesn't seem fair." But the opposite is the ginormous living room. You know, the sixty by eighty great room, uh, football field customer who lives in the suburbs and who has a family of 18 and regularly entertains there. Um, And in that case, you know, you're really, really getting cream. So it put me back in a position where I had this fixed fee and yet I knew it wasn't sufficient to cover the size of the room. And now I'm thinking, do I double it? Do I triple it? is it based on square footage? I don't know. I mean, there's only one paint color on the walls, so that's not doubled, but there's two sofas or two seating areas. So that that is doubled. Anyway, it just put me back in a position where I felt like I was back to guesstimating really. Uh, and it didn't give me the confidence that I had hoped I would gain from using the fixed room by room fees. I recognize that for most of us, and certainly for myself, uh, financial success is not the only measure of success. But I have learned as I've gotten older that it is, in fact, one measure of success, And I deserve to be compensated for the value and expertise I bring to the equation. And equally important, I deserve to be compensated for the risk and responsibility I absorb on behalf of that client. Because make no mistake about it, even if you're not the person who's hiring the trades, you are accepting enormous risk and responsibility by stepping foot on that job site. And I've shared this with you many, many times. I've coached many designers who have found... themselves in very uncomfortable situations where either a lawsuit was threatened or actually initiated. And they were on the job as the designer, but were not in charge of the trades, did not make money off the trades. And yet they were embroiled in the mess because they participated in the dynamics of the project. So my feeling has always been I need to be compensated fairly so I can protect myself in the event that something goes wrong. This isn't a hobby for me, and it isn't a hobby for you, and I cannot do my best work unless I am compensated for the work that I do. I can't sustain my business if I'm not compensated. I can't tell you how many people I have coached to have come to me uh, because their spouse is very unhappy that they're not making money that's consistent with the amount of work they do, not consistent with the amount of hours that they're putting in, not consistent with the amount of weekend time they give up, or... Evening time they give up or vacation time they give up and they're frustrated, demoralized and looking at all kinds of other career paths uh, to get them out of the mess. And I'm telling you this, it's a business that you can feel really good about what you've contributed to a person's place of residence and their lifestyle and their family and uh, you deserve that. So there's no fairy godmother coming to tell you it's time to give yourself a raise. I'll be your fairy godmother godmother. You trust me, right? You I'm telling you, it's time for a raise. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're saying, oh no, you're crazy. I love it. I do a fixed fee proposal and it's based on a room by room percentage or room by room fee and it works brilliantly. And I would say to you, that's awesome. If it's not broke, don't fix it, but do me a favor. Track every second that you spend on those jobs and come back to me and tell me if the amount of time you spend is equivalent to the amount of money you charge. And if it isn't, you are really, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the whole industry a disservice. Don't think for a minute that flat fees are a shortcut to business practices. They're really not. We still need to have firm business practices. We still want to analyze and evaluate the work we've done in the past to make sure we're doing our best work going forward. And by the way, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, don't feel for a minute that I can't handle a little pushback. If you feel like I've missed the mark on something, uh, I learned so much from this community. I can't thank you enough for the, for your candidness, uh, for your willingness to share and be vulnerable every day. That I think I do this job, uh, it doesn't get easier. It's a very difficult and challenging job, but I love it, and you love it, and it makes it so much better that I know you're there. So thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And by all means, if you feel like I've missed the mark on something, I want to hear from you. And you could end up being a guest on the podcast and sharing your expertise. We'd love that too. The last method we're going to review in this podcast is one that sounds so perfect. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is flawless, provided you have one bit of information that's critical, and that is a fixed, precise budget. You already see the problem, don't you? <laughs> How often do clients know exactly what their fixed, precise budget is? They may know the fixed part, right? But when you compare that budget to the wish list, there's often a very big discrepancy. In each of the examples I'm sharing with you in this podcast, the guesstimating room by room fixed fees and percentage of overall budget, you will find some calculations that will allow you to look closely at the numbers behind the examples I'm giving. And I think that's really helpful because often we're moving so fast, we don't even take time to actually do the math and recognize how much money we're leaving on the table. So this is a method that at first blush looks perfect a percentage of overall budget. Well, that's easy. I mean, I am going to take a fee based on the client's budget. So the client says, uh, I want to renovate my kitchen. The budget's $100,000. And then all I have to do is figure out what my percentage is. If I'm using a 10% calculation on $100,000, that would be $10,000. If I'm using a 15% calculation on $100,000, that would be $15,000. If I'm using a 20% calculation, on a $100,000 budget, that would be a $20,000 calculation. And that would mean that I am going to charge $20,000 for my fee. It seems simple. It seems easy. It seems perfect. I was really enthusiastic about this one. And then I realized, wait a minute, clients know what they want to spend, But the next part of the equation, what does it cost to have everything on the wish list, is often the most difficult factor to get to. And that impacts the budget by a lot. So some of you are saying, okay, but if the client wants to spend $100,000 on the kitchen, isn't it my job to spend $100,000 on the kitchen and not spend a penny more? well, you know, I know why you say that because we want to honor and respect our clients and that's really important. But the fact of the matter is, once I listen to the scope of work, I often find the client, yes, wants to spend $100,000, but the wish list is very specific as well. The client wants a sub-zero refrigerator, a Wolf Range a built-in Miele espresso maker, and those things are going to amount to another $45,000, let's say. So now we're talking about almost 50% of the budget has gone to only the appliances, and we haven't even started talking about cabinetry, or faucets, or a backsplash, or new flooring and new draperies, or whatever else is involved in the kitchen. So very quickly, you can see that either I have to stick to that $100,000, in which case tell the client, sorry, you're not getting a sub-zero fridge. Uh, You're going to get this crappy dented fridge from Sears because that's what you can afford. And I know already that that's not going to go very well. So I have to remind myself constantly as a design professional that just because the client wants to spend $100,000 doesn't mean I have to give them everything on their wish list for $100,000. And in my experience, clients are much more driven by the wish list than they are by the budget. I would say 75% of our projects are driven completely by the wish list. They know for sure they want the Sub-Zero fridge. They know for sure they want the Wolf range. They know for sure they want the industrial dishwasher. They absolutely want a wine fridge. They're not willing to compromise on those things. And when the appliance package comes to $80,000, it's very clear to the client that $100,000 is not going to cut it, and so they'll increase the budget. Of course we have clients who have $100,000 and not a penny more to spend, and that's a different concept. Conversation. And at that point, it's my belief that the client shouldn't allow me to make substitutions, but rather should be in charge of making substitutions on their own. And I always use the example of a car. Let's say the client gave you fifty thousand dollars to go buy them a new BMW, and off you go to the BMW store. And the client tells you they want leather seats, they want a sunroof, they want uh, a GPS built in, and they want heated seats and a heated steering wheel, etc. So I go off to the BMW dealer and I say, "This is everything I want," and the budget is fifty thousand dollars. And the dealer says, "Oh gosh, gee, I'm sorry, the car that you're describing is actually seventy five thousand dollars," and I I say, oh dear, because the client's only given me $50,000. What am I going to do? So the dealer will say, well, what about a car that doesn't have a sunroof and doesn't have a GPS and no leather seats and we can get it to $50,000? And I say, okay, let's do that. And so I purchase this car. I stick to the budget. I bring them the car. And you know, the second word out of their mouth, first word is, wow, the car, yay, so exciting. The second thing that's going to come out of their mouth is, where's my sunroof? So I don't want to be the person who decides whether or not the client gets a sunroof. I want to price everything on their dream car, and then they can either decide to spend more money and get everything they want in their dream car, or they can decide which elements they want to say goodbye to in order to bring the price of the car down. Does that make sense? I don't want to be the person who subs out the sub zero refrigerator for a cheap uh, model from Home Depot. That, that isn't my job. I know for sure I'm going to disappoint the client if I do that. I will, however, respect the client's right to make that decision. And if the client decides to make that substitution, that's fine with me. I'm not trying to get the client to spend more money. I'm trying to make the client happy. And I can't do that without their direction. So be very careful of any flat fee that is built on a budget that is made up on thin air. And that's what it is made up on. The client has guesstimated what they're going to spend on the kitchen and $100,000 by anyone's estimation is a lot of money. None of us thinks $100,000 isn't a lot of money. So far be it from me to say that's, you know, that's ridiculous. I could never do a kitchen for $100,000. I'm not going to say that. I think $100,000 is a lot of money. What I can say is in my experience, kitchens can add up really quickly. And if you want some big luxury splurges, uh, you're going to be able to blow through that money very, very quickly. So either you're going to have to decide to increase the budget or make some compromises on the wish list. There's two big problems with the percentage of overall budget. The one is you're not going to get paid enough if, in fact, the budget isn't $100,000, it's $300,000 because your fee is based on $100,000. And yes, you might be able to go back and collect more money if the budget goes up, but I've had the experience because I've tried this method myself a couple of times where the client says, well, I didn't realize your fees were going to go up. I mean, we're doing everything we can to afford everything. And And now you want more, even though a fridge is a fridge is a fridge. And that's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. No question about it. The second problem is contractually, if I promise to deliver a kitchen for $100,000, but there isn't very clear language around what that includes and what it doesn't include, then I may be in trouble on a legal footing. So let me give you an example. We did a project in Muskoka, which is north of Toronto by about an hour and a half. And it's kind of an exclusive uh, cottage country area. It's been referred to as Canada's Hamptons. Um, So it's a very high-end clientele. Uh, It's beautiful beautiful up there. There's no question about it. And the client was an extremely difficult guy. Uh, Most clients aren't. Most clients are awesome. But this one, he really was a challenging guy. There's no doubt about it. But I managed to get along with him very well. I have very firm rules about how it was going to work and everything was great. The contractor, on the other hand, uh, got himself into a very serious problem, which ties into our conversation right now. And it had to do with providing him with a contract that put a number of... On the kitchen that was going into his boathouse, uh, but didn't put a cap on the items the client could choose. So, for example, in that case, the contractor had provided an allowance for appliances but no information about the quality or cost of those appliances. So the client went out and selected a sub-zero fridge and a Wolf range and all those things that you would put in your high-end home kitchen, Uh, and this was the boathouse. And the contractor didn't allow for those high-end products because it was just a boathouse. But in this case, because of the way the contractor's contract was worded, the client insisted the contractor... Had to purchase those appliances and not charge him any more money. The contractor came to me um, nearly in tears. He was so stressed out. uh, He wasn't making any money on this project. In fact, it was going to cost him money. And asked me if I could intervene on his behalf with the client. And I did my best. I said to the client that the contractor was obviously naive. He was kind of young. His contract needs some work. But the client was a very wealthy man, and he could understand how somebody uh, newer to the business might make this novice mistake. And wouldn't he be willing to increase the budget in order to pay for the appliances that that he insisted on having and the client in this case, and I would say this is extremely rare. Most clients aren't like this, but in this case, he insisted that the contractor had made a deal and he needed to honor it. And that was the end of it. And uh, I was unable to move the dial at all. So the poor contractor learned a valuable lesson, but one that can serve us as well. Never, never put yourself in a situation where you've got a contract that has a flat fee, but doesn't take care of describing the exact scope of work. And how many revisions uh, and protect you in a variety of ways. That's very important. And a percentage of overall budget is one of those situations where you can really get yourself into a a mess. What I really want you to take away from the episode today is the idea that 99% of the time it is impossible for anyone, even a professional. Even a professional with 30 or 40 years experience doing nothing but renovating, or remodeling, redecorating, it's impossible for them to be able to put a fine number to a project which starts at the beginning with a consultation and ends Uh, way after installation. It's really impossible to do that. So I'm glad you're tuning into podcasts. We are going to talk about how to do flat fees, no question about it. Many of you have volume three win the flat fee game. I'm so happy you do because everything is in there, including every way my flat fee contract varies from my hourly fee contract. So if you're listening and you think I've already taken the time to learn Kimberly's hourly fee contracts, I'm not now going to switch to flat fees, what I would say to you is you're not going to be throwing the one out and starting over. Flat fees work entirely within the 15-step structure. There are a modest few changes to the contract which are essential and critical, and I list every single one of those in the book, by the way, and we will review them all on podcasts coming up. We've also got a webinar online at businessofdesign.com if you're not a member that you can purchase, um, and if you are a member, gosh, more than 100 courses, many of them are going to relate to flat fees, and uh, we do want you to sign up for membership because, quite frankly, it's the best value. It's $67.50. It's U.S. dollars, and uh, you will be part of a community that is uh growing. Uh, right now, I think we have more than 30 countries who are joining the business of design community. And that's really exciting for me because when I started it all, we do projects in Toronto predominantly and a smaller percentage of our projects are in Los Angeles. I never dreamed that it would spread so far and wide. In fact, I kind of saw it as being limited to those two little markets. But today it's wonderful that everybody can listen in on the podcast and uh, phone in. We had a woman phone in recently from India and we are just like seriously you're in India are you kidding me so you have the same problems that we do the world is after all a very small place you're not alone I feel better knowing you're here and uh, I want to thank you for supporting me these years and giving me the courage to do the things that are scary because sometimes uh, I find this scary to try new things just like you do And as a community, I want to encourage every single one of you to reach out to somebody who's on the road behind you and give them a hand. If you share with them what you've learned uh, through Business of Design and through other speakers and through one another, it's not going to hurt you. It's going to help you. It's going to help the industry as a whole. Pay it forward. Be kind. Let's go out there and earn a great living and feel great about the work we do. It's important work. It's valuable work. And you matter a lot to me. So thanks for being here.